Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thomas Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. This week, we will be previewing week seven and recapping all that happened in week six. Big ol' elephant in the room. I knew this day would come where I had to record after an Alabama loss. And to be honest, I was not looking forward to it, but the Braves just won the NLDS three games to one over the Milwaukee Brewers. So I decided to record while I'm in a rather chipper mood, no pun intended. So we will uh, plow right through this. I'm not going to skip over the Bama game or anything. We'll dive deep into everything that happened. And I, since I was there, I'll talk about my experience. A little bit in College Station, going to the game, my first game since uh, before COVID. So that was a great one to attend. But yeah, we'll uh, look at that and everything else that happened on Saturday and uh, look ahead. So thanks for listening and we'll get underway right now. Thomas Jackson, beautiful podcast from Denver. So I feel like we've said this uh, probably two or three times now, but this really was a wild college football Saturday. I think this one probably even more so uh, than the other ones that have been especially crazy so far this season because of the Bama outcome alone. Uh, Texas A&M, 41, Alabama, 38. So A&M, it's their first win against Bama since the Johnny football game in 2012, which I was also at. Uh, I was thinking back, it's got to be the most stunning Alabama loss since 2010 or maybe even 2007, uh, depending on your thoughts on whether the South Carolina or the ULM game were more shocking. To me, South Carolina really came to mind because we hadn't, the season before, we had gone undefeated. It was a similar kind of October, middle of the season game when we lost to Steven Garcia and the Cox. Um, so there were just kind of, there were some parallels there. And even though South Carolina was probably a better team than Texas A&M this year, um, I think that those two games are probably the only, the only ones in the Saban era that are kind of on that level of surprising. Um, yeah, we'll get into the recap now. A&M uh, jumped out to a big lead, and they were up 14 points at half. Alabama couldn't do anything on offense and really couldn't stop A&M hardly at all. A&M was just working their way up and down the field. Uh, the Aggies' defense was killing Bama's offensive line, and Bryce Young was really under assault the entire first half. I mean, he didn't have time to do anything, and there were a lot of plays where I think I just have a little PTSD from Tua, but I was just, you know, wincing and praying that he got up okay, and he showed some serious toughness because he took a lot of hits, especially in the first half, and he got up and kept marching on, so I was proud of him for that, but uh, he also made a really bad interception on the goal line where Bama, you know, went... When it's this close of a loss, you look back and it's kind of infuriating. It's really easy to drive yourself crazy thinking about literally a dozen plays that come off the top of your head that, you know, if they went the other way, if the ball was just a few inches in a different spot, then the whole game probably would have been different. And that first half goal line interception was certainly one of them. Obviously, the play calling uh, inside the 10-yard line in the red zone was a pretty common complaint among Bama fans but that hurt a lot we were down by 14 at half 
the second half started with Bama getting the ball, and I thought, okay, we needed to have time bad, really bad. Uh, let's come out, drive the ball down. If nothing else, get a field goal, but preferably get a touchdown and cut this thing to uh, a one-score game. Pardon me. Uh, second half started with each team getting a stop. I believe it was two, three and outs, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, and then that's when Bama, so Bama three and out punted and then A&M, we stopped them deep in their own territory. And that's when Alabama got the blocked punt for a touchdown. Really the first big play, the crowd had to cheer for the Bama crowd and, uh, Kyle Field had to cheer for all evening. We got fired up. I was thinking, okay, that's the momentum swing we needed. It's still super early in the third quarter. Cut it to a seven-point game. Like, let's let's get a stop, get the ball back. Let's go. We'll be okay. Sure enough, that enjoyment lasted for a whole 60 seconds before we kicked the ball off, and they ran it back for seven to extend the lead out to 14 points yet again. And that's when I kind of realized like okay this is going to be a a longer game than usual it's not going to be Bama taking it over halfway through the third quarter and then just cruising from there on out Uh, after that though besides the kickoff return Bama didn't let up any more points to the Texas A&M offense or special teams for that matter until very late in the fourth quarter when it turns out they just needed really one more stop to win the game and yeah, the offense, Bama's offense moved the ball very well. They gave Bryce better protection, but a lot of the drives were just kind of bend, don't break by Texas A&M. Bama got a, t- a couple touchdowns, but there were also a couple drives where they had to settle for field goals. Most notably, uh, and this probably more than anything has been the thing that has just bothered me and been on my mind. It's when we had the ball. First and goal on the three-yard line, and we had just been moving it down their throats, no problem, and uh, we went pass, 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 field goal. On the first play, they threw a screen pass. I think it was to Mechie over to the left side. Maybe it was Williams. Uh, That was on the opposite side of the field from where I was, and it was literally felt about two miles away. Um, So I'm having a hard time remembering, but... He lost a yard, and then I guess Bill O'Brien didn't feel comfortable with running it with B-Rob, our fifth-year running back, on second or third and goal on the four-yard line. So we had to settle for three points, and you think back about shit like that, and it you know was the difference of the game, among many other, many other things, but it is what it is. Uh, of course, the whole second half, this is nothing new to Bama fans. Uh, we saw it the last game I was at uh, against LSU, but A&M defenders were dropping like flies, and miraculously, after about 45 seconds of sulking, getting up, running off the field, then returning to the game, I won't go too too deep into that, but many of you know what I'm talking about. It's not the first time we've seen that in a close Bama game down the stretch. Bama finally took the lead in the fourth quarter. Felt like everything was going to be fine, and then they gave up 10 unanswered points to end the game. Like I said, those were the first 10 points that the Aggies' offense had scored the whole second half. Otherwise, our defense did a great job until it really mattered the most, which is incredibly frustrating. Got to give a shout-out to Zach Calzada. I'll start saying his name right from now on. Uh, 
He played very well, not spectacular, but the big thing is is that he didn't make a bunch of stupid plays that, you know, got his team back into the hole or killed the momentum. He had one first half interception that turned out to be unconsequential and otherwise played a, you know, very solid game, but I mean, you know, it it's kind of half of it was Texas A&M just not screwing up, uh playing smart pretty sound football and half of it was Bama just getting pushed around and really one of the worst defensive performances I've ever seen by them especially when you think back to Texas A&M not being able to score on Colorado or Mississippi State <clears throat> makes this one pretty hard to swallow not gonna lie uh, another really weird thing about this game is that well several uh, unlike a lot of um, a lot of Bama games that we've lost in the Saban era. There really wasn't any circus shit that went down. You know, I mean, you can nitpick here and there. There were some things that didn't go our way, but overall, compared to the 2012 A&M game with Johnny Manziel, we all remember that. The 2015 Ole Miss game with all of those trick, you know, not trick plays, just ab- you know, anomaly occurrences that went down and ended up being the difference in the game and almost every iron bowl from the past decade plus since Saban got here there were no just circus crazy unbelievable bounce off a helmet you know deflect off an official and wound up in an A&M player's hands in the end zone type of uh type of plays which those almost make it you know easier <laughs> to Con, you know conceptualize how Bama lost most of the time but this one we just we just got beat our defense was incredibly soft and our offense was not awake until halftime so uh A&M came out they were ready we were not and that's that Jimbo uh is the first Saban assistant to beat him so RIP to all of those Saban undefeated versus former assistant stats uh Yeah, like I said earlier, this is the worst team to beat Bama in recent memory. So whether that's a credit to A&M or a knock on Bama, you can marinate on that yourselves. We talked a couple weeks ago when Bama beat uh, Southern Miss. I guess that was week four, the one after Florida before Ole Miss. Uh, That was Saban's 100th consecutive win against an unranked team. Alabama has been the most stable force in any sport in probably, you know, the country, if not all major sports in the world, with just winning the games that they are truly supposed to win when they are big favorites. And this was the first time since 2007, Louisiana Monroe, that we lost to an unranked team, uh, which makes this even more shocking. So that's all I got on the game. Um, A little bit about my day going to the game. I will get to you in just one second after I take a quick break. So my good buddies, Alex Venezia and Peyton Thomas, were great hosts. I traveled to Austin on Thursday night to have a good launching point uh, for the game on Saturday. We ended up meeting up with my Good long best friend Carter Lockwood uh, and also KP and Martha at the Alabama tailgate uh, in College Station. And it was really nice to see everybody slash meet those of you that I didn't know beforehand. 
Uh, I sat with Carter at the game as Alex and I got split up. We bought tickets through the uh, Alabama-Austin Alumni Association, thinking we'd be together, but unfortunately we were spread out across the end zone as logistics got pretty complicated. But we all made it into the stadium. Uh, They actually gave Alabama a really nice setup for the Alumni Association tailgate. We just paid to get a ticket in there and had like unlimited food and drinks for a few hours before the game, which was great. They had an indoor and outdoor area with a bunch of TVs. They were showing the Auburn game on. And um, the outdoor area was like a huge kind of rooftop balcony area on their student rec center that had a beautiful uninterrupted view of Kyle Field. So that was a fun spot to hang out before the game, and it was certainly better than just kind of aimlessly roaming around Kyle Field because I didn't know anybody that wasn't a Bama person that was going to be in uh, – or College Station, rather, that's what I meant. But in town that day, I didn't, you know, have anywhere to go, so it was nice to have a little hangout spot. Um, on the way to the stadium, there were like half a dozen mega preachers that were – kind of had their makeshift microphone which was a little new you see those once every now and then I guess in an SEC town but they were out in full force so I don't know if Church of the Highlands is really strongly infiltrated Texas A&M but kind of seemed like that type of a vibe uh, once we got in the stadium Carter and I were on the actual top row of Kyle Stadium Kyle Field sorry it was uh, way 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 up there While I was not a huge fan of their campus, as you might could imagine, it was kind of a very bland, sterile, kind of military base feeling university. The stadium itself was very beautiful and very nice, so I will give them credit on that. Really easy to get in and out, so that was cool. Uh, The stadium was extraordinarily loud. This was the first ever true away game that I've attended that Alabama has lost and I've been to quite a few I've been to let's see uh Auburn Ole Miss Mississippi State Arkansas Tennessee and I guess now A&M and uh then quite a few you know neutral site games and Atlanta and Dallas and uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and wherever else. But this was the first true away game that I ever attended that we lost. Usually Bama can uh, kind of shut the crowd up after 15 or 30 minutes of game time, but that was obviously not the case. And it was uh, pretty jarring how loud it was in there. We are not cheering along with the home crowd. It was probably not, I mean, there's no way it was as loud where I was on the top row as it was on the field. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be a coach or player or even just be sitting in the lower bowl because all of the sound was directed away from us and it was still you know kind of so loud it felt like slow motion almost sometimes when things went bad and the stadium got really fired up their chants all of their yell leader stuff was very weird and I won't harp on that after getting our asses kicked but it was just odd very odd uh it was a nice crowd They were heckling me, honestly, more at halftime than they were after the game. There was one point where, uh, right before halftime, I went down to the bathroom to try to beat the crowd when A&M was up by 14, and it was just me and about a dozen other A&M fans 
in the bathroom and they were kind of, you know, kind of ribbing on me and giving me a hard time as they should have been. They deserved it. And I kind of was calculating my response, like, hmm, how's the best way to play this? Like, I know if I get all snappy and defensive, like, A, Bama has been getting our ass kicked. So, like, that's probably not a great move when we've been playing this bad. But, B, I'm just outnumbered, like, 12 to 1. So, like, not that I felt like I was going to get my ass kicked or anything. They probably just would have, like, it would have just egged him on and fired him up even more and just, you know, escalated the situation. So I forget what they were saying to me, but I was just kind of like, hey, you know, like, y'all are right. It's just y'all's night. Y'all got this, you know. You know, the the game, I, I was just acting like the game was over and like Alabama had no chance to come back. And I knew we would at least make it a ball game. I still thought we would win at the time, but I wasn't telling them that. I was just, act, I was basically just submitting to them and saying, hey, congrats. Y'all, you know, y'all play a great game. Y'all are just a better team tonight. And it kind of freaked them out. They were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like, there's a lot, there's a lot of time left to play. Like, I don't know, man. And I was just going, no, 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 scoreboard. You know, y'all are up by two touchdowns. It's a done deal. This is a great, great stadium. And it kind of freaked them out, my, my response. I don't think they were expecting that. But if anyone's ever stuck in a situation like that in an away game, it's uh, apparently a pretty good card to pull. So, <laughs> um. Thankfully, got out of there quick. It was super easy to get um, out of College Station, so it was nice not having to sit in traffic for an hour because we had to drive back to Austin. Thank you to Alex for transporting us back and forth. Um, Yeah, let's see if I got anything else deep down in my notes before I wrap this segment up. Yeah, a couple last things on Bama and A&M, and then we'll move on to the other games from Week 6 because there were so many other ones. Um, that were really good down the stretch, but a couple of last thoughts on Bama. Um, <laughs> we'll get more into this later and the voicemail segment, but basically, uh, to wrap it up, Bama fans, turns out that sometimes losing like a thousand first rounders in the NFL draft year after year and year can sometimes hurt a team and a program and be hard to rebound from. And the dynasty, you know, hey, we had a good run. It, it, it just might be over. So we'll have to see about that. But, uh, you know, hey, we've never lost to an unranked team in, what, 14 years? So it's probably all over. You know, we probably won't come back and do anything amazing this season or anything. We might just go downhill going forward. But that's okay. Like they said back in 2015, I think the dynasty's run its course. So we'll just have to wait and see about that. But... Just my thoughts and a couple last things on AM. I don't even remember the last time they had a win this big. Like last year, they beat Florida, who was, I assume, a top 10 or 15 team uh, there in Kyle Field. But obviously, beating the number one team is a little bit different. Uh, four out of the last nine meetings between Bama and AM. Texas AM came in undefeated with a lot of hype as a top 10 team. And a Bama win or a win against Bama could have kind of catapulted them into the playoffs. Um, And it's kind of like just really weird that this is the team that finally does knock off Bama that already has two losses to Arkansas, which there's no shame in that. But Mississippi State as well, losing their quarterback, you know, at least hurt them in those two games not the Bama game. But it's just so weird that out of all the A and M teams that have been so hyped up going into the Bama game, 
this is the one where nobody saw this coming in the entire universe uh, that actually knocks off the tide. So that's just kind of a... I, I, I'm sure A&M fans aren't like sad about it, but that's got to like... when Once, once they kind of settle down from the buzz of the win, they have to... I'm sure they're like, damn, like we just had to lose those couple of games, especially that Mississippi State game. Because even if they just had one loss right now then they would control their own destiny in the in the west and if you get to Atlanta who knows what happens as far as the postseason goes but the fact of the matter is is that they do have two losses so you know to wrap the Bama A&M segment up Texas A&M congratulations on a great win you played very well enjoy the Gator Bowl moving on to Iowa and Penn State the number two versus number three teams in the country at least on Saturday Iowa won 23-20. A pretty fluky outcome, if you didn't see the game. Uh, Penn State led this one 17-3 with excuse me, <laughs> uh, 12 and a half minutes left to go in the second quarter. And then Sean Clifford got hurt, and he was out for the rest of the game. And once that... Uh, once he went out of the game, that 17-3 to lead eventually evaporated into a 23-20 to Penn State loss. So, uh, still a lot of questions about Iowa. I mean, you know, a win is a win, whatever. But the remaining 42 minutes where Sean Clifford wasn't in the game, Iowa won that portion 20-3. to So, Penn State's backup quarterback just couldn't do anything. And Iowa really capitalized on Penn State being down on the offensive side. So kind of like AM, this is the biggest win for Iowa since I don't even know when. I mean, the Iowa State win was really big at the beginning of the season, but now Iowa State is kind of falling off the map and is very quietly playing better now. Although their playoff aspirations are dead, the Big 12 is still kind of wide open. So, um, yeah. Iowa has no more ranked teams left on their schedule, which is crazy because the Big Ten is so insanely lopsided this year. It really always is because Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, and Michigan State are all in the same division. Then the other other side just has like Wisconsin and Iowa that are the only two like decently consistent teams. Not that they're really ever elite, but... It's kind of like the SEC to a much lesser degree, how some years the West is really stacked if there's a good Alabama, LSU, Auburn, and A&M. And then on the East, if it's like only Georgia or Florida are like a really good, respectable team that year, it's very similar to what's happening in the Big Ten this year. But Iowa lucked out, and they're the one team alone on their side since Wisconsin evaporated into a Pop Warner squad. So there are now five top 10 teams in the Big Ten, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, but just to hit on it quickly so you kind of see what Iowa has in front of them. They have played all the ranked teams on their schedule, and the other side of the Big Ten in the East or whatever it's called has Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, who have all yet to play each other so it's kind of like a four-way round robin and they're gonna beat themselves up without a doubt because that's just inevitable at this point but we'll get into that schedule a little bit later texas loses to oklahoma 55 to 48 
the Red River Shootout uh, was uh, all, another all-time classic. Like it always feels feels like it is. Texas jumped out to a uh, 14-0 lead before the game basically even started. Uh, I was able to catch the beginning of this one before we departed for College Station on Saturday morning, and it was literally, I think, within the first minute of gameplay that Texas was up two touchdowns, and uh, we didn't even know what had happened hardly, but OU ended up coming back to win the game uh, with their backup quarterback after Spencer, Spencer Rattler got benched in the second quarter. If you remember last year in the Red River shootout, Spencer Rattler got benched in that game as well, although he was much younger then, obviously, and it was it seems like more of a wake-up call from Lincoln Riley, like Rattler was underperforming in that big game, and Riley sat him down for a couple of drives, ended up bringing him back in, and then that's kind of when Rattler like woke up and really started playing well for the rest of the season. This year, that didn't happen because he never got the chance to come back in. Their backup quarterback, Caleb Williams, ended up finishing out the game from the second quarter on and and led the biggest comeback in Red River shootout rivalry history. So there is a very, very dramatic quarterback controversy going on now in Norman. And I saw earlier today, this was recording on Tuesday night, that Williams was announced the starter by Lincoln Riley. So just to go over their stat lines, um, Spencer Rattler was 8 of 15 for 111 yards and two turnovers. And he had five rushes for negative nine yards. Caleb Williams, after he came in the game, he was 16 of 25 for 212, two touchdowns, and he had a 66-yard rushing touchdown on top of that. Like I said, he led the largest comeback in the history of the series, which was 21 points, although I believe when he came in the game, Texas was already up by 20 points. Oklahoma had scored again. Texas had scored again, so Oklahoma was only down 17 when Williams came in, but still... He uh, he led that comeback, and the Sooners ended up getting it done. It looked like we might get another overtime game like last year, uh, which went into four overtimes, of course. But OU was kind of driving the ball down as the clock was winding down. And when it looked like they were just playing for a field goal, they ended up busting a huge run to seal the victory. Uh, that went for a touchdown. So... Uh, we'll, we'll we'll preview more whether or not Texas is back later in the segment section of the pod, not to uh, provide any spoilers, but some of you who have been listening might be able to tell where that one's going. Another crazy shootout, Ole Miss tops Arkansas, or just survives, outlasts is probably the better the better word for that, 52-51 to 51 in Oxford on Saturday morning. This game was going on at the same time as the Red River shootout, so it was a lot to take in there early in the morning and early in the afternoon. It was a crazy shootout. Um, Arkansas last held the lead, believe it or not, with 10 minutes left in the second quarter. After that, Ole Miss uh, scored a couple times in a row, and it was a situation where the game was always close. But it basically went between Ole Miss being up seven, Arkansas scoring to tie it up, Ole Miss scoring to go up seven, Arkansas scoring to tie it up, and Arkansas just never could get any stops and scores consecutively. They, 
like they needed to to take the lead back from Ole Miss and uh, kind of put the game more into their hands. The last drive of this game was especially crazy, as you could probably expect from a 52-51 to 51 type of SEC game. Uh, Arkansas drove the ball all the way down the field. They were down seven, so they needed a touchdown and a PAT to win, or to tie it, rather. Uh, the Ole Miss clock operator <laughs> stopped the clock with a second left at the end of an Arkansas play that looks like it easily could have just ticked another second and no one would have really noticed or said anything. So Arkansas had a play at about the five-yard five line, give or take a yard or two, to uh, tie up the game with one second left on the clock. K.J. Jefferson sailed it into the back of the end zone. It wasn't a very good pass, but Arkansas got a penalty. It was a P.I. or defensive holding or something like that on the last play of the game. So they had one more last play of the game. That was an untimed down, which they scored on. Jefferson hit Warren Thomas as, uh, well, not as time expired, but as time was already expired on their second to last play of the ga- second last play of the game. And then Sam Pittman decided to go for two, and they didn't get it. It felt like they really would because they had Old Miss's defense just on their heels. I'm sure they were all gassed. But... Uh, you know, it's easy to criticize a decision like that in hindsight. I kind of like it as an underdog on the road instead of trying to extend the game. Just go for the kill shot. You know, it's basically a coin flip just like overtime is. So I kind of like that. And if nothing else, at least you save your legs a little bit more for next week when Auburn comes to town. But that was a tough one for the Hogs to go down. Now they've lost a couple straight after the Georgia game last week and Ole Miss this week. Certainly no shame in either of those losses, especially with them both uh, coming on the road. But they'll have to get themselves up to bounce back for, uh, you know, looks like a pretty decent Auburn team coming to Fayetteville next Saturday. Uh, Kentucky <laughs> bludgeoned uh, LSU 42-21. to This is a hilarious outcome that really lifted my spirits when I saw the score on the way home from College Station. LSU moved the ball better than they have uh, in the past couple of weeks. Like, they didn't have, like, an 11 rushing yard type of stat like they did against Auburn. However, most of this came when it was just too little too late in garbage time. So they couldn't match... Kentucky who got up to a 21 lead uh, very soon after halftime and that's then after that Kentucky was pretty much just coasting and that's when LSU got all of their points later in the game when I assume Kentucky probably had some backups in so the, the score of 42-21 probably wasn't even that close uh, Kentucky had 335 rushing yards to LSU's 175 so the Cats were really just moving the ball at will on the ground. Uh, moving on a little bit quicker now, Michigan beat Nebraska 32-29. to Michigan was in the driver's seat of this game for most of the game. They got up 13-0, to but Nebraska battled back and actually led 29-26 to with seven minutes left. And Michigan kicked a field goal, or no, two field goals after they were down by three with seven left to end up winning that game in Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska had three turnovers, which you can probably, uh, that's probably the easiest stat to determine why they ended up coughing up that game. But just yet another close loss for Scott Frost, which we'll get into more later. A few more noteworthy scores from around the country. 
that we'll just touch on super quick and move on to the end of our week six preview. Boise State actually beat number 10 BYU 26-17. So uh, we were talking about them on the voicemail segment a good bit a couple weeks ago. We'll hit on them when we look at the playoff preview here shortly. Uh, but BYU number 10 goes down. Number two, Georgia rolled past number 18, Auburn, 34 to 10. Number 14, Notre Dame beat Virginia Tech, 32 to 29 in Blacksburg. Even though Virginia Tech's not very good, that's always a close place to play or a tough place to play. So good on the Hokies for keeping it close and everything. Good win for the Irish. Tennessee blew out South Carolina, 42 to 20. That Vols offense is really coming to life the past couple couple weeks. With speaking of Virginia Tech, the transfer quarterback from there, and Utah beat USC, 42 to 26. The Trojans are dead as a rock, and Utah, who knows, maybe they're starting to show some life. They're in the Pac-12 South. So to round up this week's preview. Let's take a quick look at the rankings and kind of what the playoff picture is looking like. So like I said, BYU lost when uh, John from Tuscaloosa called in a couple weeks ago asking for a couple dark horses. I gave him BYU and Cincinnati just as far as like group of five teams slash independent teams go. Now BYU, you can count them out of the picture. They'll still have probably a very good season, 10-11 wins, but with a loss you know, to a another non-Power 5 team, you can't really count on that to get you in the playoff because, of course, it's never happened and it's certainly not going to with a loss to a 2-3 and three Boise team. Cincinnati rolled past Temple 52-3. to three. Uh, I know Temple was a really popular spread pick for a lot of people uh, because I think they were catching like 29 or 30 points. And, of course, Cincy beat Notre Dame last week. So... A lot of people thought with that being probably the biggest win in Cincinnati Bearcats football history. Um, excuse me. Um, they thought this would be a letdown spot for Cincinnati. Not the case. They take care of business winning by an easy seven touchdowns. So now, like I said, Cincinnati, the rest of their schedule, they're done with the hard part. A lot of weird things have happened. Texas A&M just beat Bama. You know, BYU's out of the picture. This could uh, could get very interesting. And if Cincinnati can keep their focus and keep their composure, they're going to be the first non-Power 5 team to make it into the playoff this year. However, we have teams like Oklahoma and Ohio State kind of coming to life. Iowa also has no more ranked teams on their schedule like we talked about previously. So the AP poll looks like this now. Number one, Georgia, congratulations. I know I have a couple dog listeners on the podcast. You guys, this is probably the best start to a season ever because, I mean, now the Clemson win doesn't look super convincing, but otherwise since then, Georgia's just completely dominated everybody on their schedule like they really should have if they're as good as people think they are. So maybe it's just the dogs here after after all. Bama's looking like a bunch of frauds. Oklahoma, Ohio State have had you know, a couple at least a couple game couple sketchy games. And uh maybe it's just the dogs year. So congrats. Y'all are number one. I'm sure everything will go perfectly as planned from here on. Uh number two is Iowa. 
the Hawkeyes. I don't know if they've ever won a natty. If they have not, I'm sure this is probably the highest they've ever been ranked in school history. So even though it was kind of a fluky win with basically needing the backup quarterback from Penn State to come in to get that dub, they still got it done. A win is a win, and uh, their schedule is easy peasy for the rest of their way until they meet up with whoever in the Big 12 or sorry, Big 10 championship. Number three, Cincinnati Bearcats. Uh, this is now an, an official Cincinnati Bearcats supporter pod, so I'm rooting for them the rest of the way just to make things muddy and weird unless it affects my team. Number four, the Oklahoma Sooners with Caleb Williams starting at quarterback. Maybe their offense has finally figured it out. Their defense sure as hell didn't show up against the Texas team that sure is very good and talented and has my personal favorite play call, caller, Sark. Uh, behind the six there in Austin, but Oklahoma, that was a big win, and let's see if they can keep it going and not play a close game every single week with Caleb Williams. The Spencer Rattler story is just kind of crazy with all the NIL deals he got. He was supposed to be the first round draft pick, or the first overall draft pick, possibly the Heisman winner, so that's just a crazy situation in Norman. Wouldn't be surprising to see him transfer elsewhere if uh, if it doesn't work out there for the rest of the season. Number five, Bama. More on that in a second. Number six, Ohio State, who ever since losing to Oregon has just started to look better and better and better. They haven't really played anyone. Um, They've got a lot left on their schedule to get to, but they've just beaten the hell out of a couple bad teams on their schedule recently, which, you know, they probably needed those couple games to get it together. Number seven is Penn State, dropping from number three after the Iowa loss. Number eight is Michigan after squeaking by Nebraska. Number nine is Oregon, Uh, somehow after playing a couple of really weird close games and losing to a pretty crappy Stanford team on the road, okay. And number 10 is Michigan State, who is probably, besides Iowa, maybe in, you know, hand-in-hand with Iowa, the most surprising team in this top 10 this late in the season, Uh, because neither of them... Certainly not Michigan State, didn't start anywhere close to the top 10, so Mel Tucker's got it going on in East Lansing, but speaking of all those Big big 10 teams at the back of the top 10, here's what their remainder of the season looks like. So, like I said, there's four of those teams, four of the five top 10 Big 10 teams are in that Eastern whatever division, which are Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State. None of them have played anybody else in that four-team group yet. So there's like a four-team round-robin for the rest of the year. This will probably get less exciting as time goes along, um, unless like Ohio State and Michigan both went out and that game just really gets hyped up because these teams are going to beat themselves up, dropping the rankings. But right now, all of the games I'm fixing to mention are top 10 matchups. So the first of them come on week nine, which is... October 30th, Halloween weekend, uh, same day as the Georgia-Florida game. Penn State plays at the Horseshoe. Michigan plays at Michigan State. Two weeks later, week 11, there's Michigan at Penn State. The next week, week 12, Michigan State at Ohio State. And then next week, week 13, which is Thanksgiving rivalry week weekend, Penn State at Michigan State and Ohio State at Michigan. So, <laughs> you know, if all of these teams don't just beat each other up and we can just get a couple of these teams that hold on to the top 10 and a couple others, if they're all just good games and no one just falls off the face of the earth, this is going to be a really fascinating uh, season to end 
end off in the Big Twin West or no East, whatever it is. And uh, you know, hopefully that Ohio State Michigan game, it'd be really fun if both of them could win out until then. But even if not, like right now. Michigan and Michigan State are in first place in that division, and Ohio State and Penn State trail them by a game. So a lot will change without a doubt as these teams all play each other, but that's going to be a really fun, um, really fun end of the season to watch there. And it's kind of crazy. Usually it's like the SEC that's shaping up like this. I mean, a couple weeks ago when we did the September recap, we talked about how the SEC and the Big Ten have pretty much separated themselves pretty farly from the rest of the three Power Five conferences. And that's certainly still the case. And a lot like will change in the Big Ten. Um, but now with... So Kentucky's number 11 uh in the top 10 poll they were the first team that i didn't mention in that but shout out to the cats again on an unbelievable start to the season awesome mm, not upsets over florida and lsu per se but they kind of feel like upsets based on the history and stature of those programs and how those games always go so the sec will probably have you know three top 10 teams at the end of the year the big 10 probably will have two or three as well but those are the two conferences that have really held their own and provided the most entertainment and quality football for the rest of the country so a little handshake emoji from the sec here to the big 10 because i can't wait to watch how all of that plays out Ohio State will probably still kill everybody. But, hey, if they don't, it'd be a lot of fun. It's been a weird-ass season so far, so who really knows? Okay, we've got one voicemail to get to, and then we'll move on to the Week 7 preview. Hi, Hamish Tailgate Party podcast listeners. Um, I am excited to call in. I heard about this podcast through my friend Matt Statement's Twitter, um, and I've enjoyed listening over the past couple weeks. But my questions are, you know, following the loss at Kyle Field this past weekend, what are the most and least concerning elements of that loss? Um, you know, in recent years, there hasn't really been anything scarier than an Alabama team with something to prove, especially two out of the last three national championship teams um, experienced uh, a tough loss, but I don't know if those were as excruciating. Um, definitely not as um, previously unsuccessful of quarterbacks than were faced this past Saturday, um, which was a part of the excruciating pain of the loss. But um, yeah, what are, what are some of the things that you think can be cleaned up in the weeks to come and which ones are more likely to cause problems down the road? And, and also, if the opportunity were to arise where Alabama was in a position to be at a conference be at the conference championship or or even the playoff, um, do you think that following the uh, experience of this past Saturday and and the display there that they would be able to be competitive, um, especially with some of the other teams and particularly as Georgia seems to separate itself from the pack a bit. Um, so those are my questions. So thanks for answering them. Okay, thanks for calling in, and Dylan, I appreciate it. Um, so the most concerning part about the loss at A&M to me was certainly the defense. As I kind of already hit on when talking about the game, it is certainly concerning, like you said, that we lost to 
that type of a quarterback compare just considering what we've seen from him so far this season usually um you know when we lose one of these surprising regular season games it's to a quarterback who ends up being pretty accomplished even if they aren't at the time so who knows maybe calzada goes on a roll for here from here to the end of the season i still don't know what the status is of haynes king their original starting quarterback but the most uh, concerning unit was definitely Bama's defense after Texas A&M could barely score on teams like uh, Colorado, Arkansas, and Mississippi State. Not to lump Arkansas in the group with the other two, but yeah, the giving up 41 to that offense based on what we've seen so far this season, there's really no excuse for that. And with the amount of talent that Alabama has, on the defense, there is just it's it's pretty inexplicable. So I think that they just need to follow in the lead of Will Anderson because ever since the game, he's been very vocal in the press conferences for Alabama uh, the past couple of days, and it feels like they finally have a chip on their shoulder, which I thought would be the case after the very close call in Gainesville a couple weeks ago. But maybe that you know maybe they're going to finally wake up now. All we heard all offseason was how this defense was going to be the best Alabama defense in several years, and that is certainly not the case. So um, it might be a long season if the defense can't figure it out, but they definitely have the talent to. And as much as people like to rag on Pete Golding, you know, we can't forget that the head ball coach, Nick Saban, is a defensive guy himself. So, you know, whoever he trusts to give the keys to the defense to as a defensive coordinator, uh, if they have his endorsement, then I don't I don't think anyone should be blabbing on Twitter too, too much about their thoughts, because then you're essentially saying that you think, you know, more than the greatest coach of all time. And at the end of the day, it's still Saban's defense. So, uh, you know, they, they, I, they need to toughen up and play up to their potential uh, because they certainly did not do that on Saturday. You also asked about um, a positive thing that I took away from the game, and that's definitely the offensive performance from the second half, even though I will question some of the play calling despite just you know talking bad about people who do that on the defense side of the ball because I think it's pretty obvious that we should have run the ball a little bit more and trusted our fifth-year Starting running back, Brian Robinson, especially close to the goal line when we were getting some pretty good push in the running game, uh, especially at the end of the drives where the defense was gassed after they had been on the field for several minutes already. But I'm just proud of Bryce and Jamison Williams stepped up huge and even the offensive line played better in the second half uh, compared to the pretty abysmal performance in the first two quarters at how they bounced back and staged a pretty awesome comeback, even though it didn't end up being enough um, there in the second half in a super hostile environment. And to get to the third part of the voicemail, just talking about more of a long-term view, what might happen against a surging Georgia team in the conference championship and beyond. Like Ann Dillon said, 
Uh, you know, generally losses have served Alabama pretty well in the regular season over the past few years. In fact, five of Saban's seven national championships at Alabama were not undefeated seasons. And, you know, none of those came with a loss in the postseason either. So that means five of those seven years, um, you know, a pretty strong majority of it. We had a loss in the regular season, uh, and Dylan mentioned that, you know, this team, this A&M team, does not feel as good as some of those other ball squads that we lost to, which is certainly true, Um, but, you know, I guess it's just going to make it a more interesting challenge for us if it, you know, ends up working out okay for Bama, but, you know, 2011 to now... There's only been one regular season where we've lost multiple games, and that season was 2019, when we were just riddled with injuries, including obviously the most important one was losing Tua in the Mississippi State game, which led him to not play in that Iron Bowl that we lost. So if Bama wins out and goes 11-1, and then I think we'll be a-okay with where we sit going into the SEC championship game. You know, right now, I'm not, you know, so I don't bleed so much crimson that I'm totally blind to see that Georgia is the best team in the country right now. But a lot can change, and we can get a lot better. And, you know, I remember very vividly every other time that we've ever lost in the regular season under Saban and everyone always acts like the sky is falling. And while yes, this year does feel different, it always feels different. And that is a fact. (laughs) So, you know, um, it's, it's going to be a tough ride. I mean, the schedule, like I said, um, on one of the early episodes of the podcast, I was worried about this, Florida, Ole Miss, Texas A&M stretch for Bama, having those three teams in a four-week span. Although when I said that, I expected A&M to be a really, really good team, like top 10 undefeated going into this game. They turned out not to be. So, you know, I admit like probably the rest of the country, once Bama made it past uh, the Ole Miss game, I thought this week would be smooth sailing. So we're just going to have to, you know, put our boots on and get to work because it's going to be a tough schedule the rest of the way, even though, I mean, Arkansas definitely looks like the best team on paper. Tennessee's been surging, although we're going to find out a lot about them this upcoming Saturday against Ole Miss and Auburn when the Iron Bowl is there on the plains. You just really never know. Um, So we've got our work cut out for us, but essentially the good news is I guess good news and bad news is that the playoff has already started because if we lose two games we're obviously not getting in we don't deserve to we won't but if we win out and beat Georgia in Atlanta then I think we will be just fine obviously Atlanta is a long 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 way away and there's a lot to get to before then but essentially our playoff has already started because we can't afford to lose again so if you like the playoff, enjoy, because that's, that's all that Bama's the rest of the season is going to be. So thanks a lot for that question. And Dylan, I appreciate you listening and giving all of the very friendly, nice feedback. And we'll uh, move right along to week seven. All right, so moving on to the week seven preview. 
It's a really good SEC slate, but not too much elsewhere in the country. Uh, the marquee game is, <laughs> this would be weird to hear before the season, but Kentucky at Georgia. So the number 11 Wildcats go to play the number one Bulldogs at 2.30 on Saturday. The <clears throat> I say this is the best game of the day, but Georgia is a 23.5 point favorite. The over-under is 44.5. So Vegas basically thinks that this one is going to go exactly like Georgia-Arkansas did, which would not be shocking at all because I don't think Kentucky lines up well against another team that does what they like to do. Uh, this is kind of like an old old like vintage like 2011 Alabama uh, you know, type of game when our team was more of the defensive focus, run the ball, and then a team with lesser athletes would try to come up and just beat us at our own game. It would never work. And I think that's probably how Saturday's going to go in Athens. I don't think Georgia's going to have much of a trouble with this. Um, but, you know, who knows? That's why you play the game. We saw stranger things happen last Saturday. Uh, the winner of this game will basically be the SEC. St- East SEC East champion unless they you know get upset in some crazy loss that they have no business losing um they're both undefeated and Florida now has two SEC losses so that gives them some cushion even if Georgia were to lose to Florida and beat Kentucky they would still be in the driver's seat for the East to get to Atlanta Kentucky's gonna have to pass the ball uh like I don't see that going well against this Georgia defense. I mean, Georgia is the best defense in the country, and Kentucky likes to run the ball, which Georgia is not going to let them do. So unless something truly just insane happens in Athens on Saturday, I don't really see how Kentucky will be able to stick around for more than a quarter of a, or a half. Uh, Kentucky's also coming off of two very emotional victories over Florida and LSU. So, you know, they might just be a little drained physically and emotionally, which is totally understandable, especially for a program like that. Georgia's coming off of two straight-ranked wins as well, but, you know, they're built a little bit different than Kentucky is, so that shouldn't be anything out of the ordinary for Georgia. Uh, That game is at the, I don't know if I mentioned, it's the 2.30 CBS game um, for the SEC. The... Only other ranked game of the weekend is number 12, Oklahoma State, at number 25, Texas. Despite the rankings, uh, Texas is actually a five-point favorite. The over-under is 61. Uh, Oklahoma State is probably the, like along with Michigan State, the quietest undefeated team left in the country. Uh, they've looked... Honestly, better than Oklahoma has this season. Like, if you didn't know anything about college football or preseason rankings, you would certainly have Oklahoma State ranked higher than OU right now. They just obviously didn't have the preseason hype that the Sooners did going into this uh, September. So, you know, they have to work their way up a lot harder than Oklahoma does. But they don't do anything great. They just... They're just a really well-balanced team. They play well on both sides of the ball. And I think this will be a really interesting game to see how Texas rebounds uh, from the pretty catastrophic and draining Red River shootout loss last Saturday. So that'll be a good one. That kicks off at 11 a.m. It's a pretty stacked morning slate. Also at 11 a.m., Auburn travels to Arkansas, who is number 17 now. Arkansas is a three-and-a-half point favorite. The over-under is 53 
Um, I think Arkansas is the better team, but this just, you know, this is just the type of game that's really hard to predict, especially the spread, but even straight up. I mean, I don't feel really confident in either side coming away with the victory. So I think it should be a really good game. Um, if Auburn can play, you know, up to their potential, then I think it should be a great game because Arkansas, they're in need pretty badly of a bounce back win. Um, Auburn got thumped last week as well, but their situation was a little bit different than Arkansas's having with Arkansas being a top 10 team. So I think this will be a really good game on Saturday morning. Um, if I have to say a prediction, I would go with the Hogs to win, but I don't even, I don't even know that I would lay the three and a half with them. I'll probably stay far away from that game. Um, cause it just feels like it'll be close no matter who wins it. Uh, also at 11 AM in the morning slate, number 20, Florida travels to LSU. Florida is a 10 point favorite. The over under is 58 and a half. Florida should be able to score a boat ton of points on LSU and really not have any troubles. Uh, this should be a another good get-right game after their loss at Kentucky. I know losing to Kentucky was, must have been pretty jarring for the Florida fan base just because that hasn't really happened, especially... Or, it hasn't happened at Kentucky in, you know, 35 years or whatever until it did a couple weeks ago, and they steamrolled Vandy last week, which is the best get-right game, but LSU is so bad this year. I mean, Kentucky beat LSU a lot worse than they beat Florida, and that was after Kentucky came off of an emotional, physical Florida win. So what does that tell you? Florida laying the 10, that just... I still don't love that spread. It feels a little bit weird, especially that early in the morning. Um, at Tiger Stadium, I'll probably stay away from that one as well, but it would be pretty surprising to see LSU win it. Feels like it just one where they should, LSU might stick around closer than they uh, really deserve to, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, probably the best game of the day as far as an entertainment value goes as uh, number 13 Ole Miss travels to Knoxville to take on the Red Hot Vols. Ole Miss is a three-point favorite, and the over-under is 80. This over-under is about what it was for the Bama-Ole Miss game that obviously didn't live up to the hype that a lot of people expected, um, which makes it basically tied for the highest point total ever in SEC history. We're talking when we have two SEC teams playing one another. That's because both of these teams have pretty amazing explosive offenses and defenses that are not very good at all. Uh, should be a lot of fun for anybody that has, doesn't have much of a dog in the fight. Um, it will probably be a pretty stressful game for the fan bases. Uh, there's a couple really interesting angles to this game. We'll start with Tennessee. Their quarterback, Hinden Hooker from Virginia Tech that I mentioned earlier, has really found his stride. And, it, you know, like I know my buddy Alex Allen uh, was saying, it makes you wonder why Tennessee ever even started Joe Milton in the first place because of how good Hooker has looked. Um, so, you know, you never know what was going on. Maybe maybe Milton balls out in practice and just kind of shrivels up in the spotlight. 
um, and Milton, maybe it's the, or Milton, sorry, Hooker, maybe it's the exact opposite with him. Uh, so regardless, Tennessee has absolutely rolled the past couple of weeks against Missouri and South Carolina. Uh, I will say those two opponents are far inferior to what they're going to see in Ole Miss. So, you know, this this is going to be, I know Tennessee fans are probably feeling pretty good and everything, and you should, but this will be a much better gauge of where the program's really at because I think at this point we can say that Ole Miss is good but not great. Um, but they're, you know, certainly better than most Ole Miss teams that we've seen in the past. Of course, a lot of this is due to their fearless leader, Lane Kiffin, who returns to Knoxville for the first time as a head coach after his controversial tenure there. Um, I'm sure the Tennessee crowd, this is a night game. It is a 5.30 kick, I believe, Central Time. Let me check on that real quick. That's 5.30 Mountain. Some of that uh, Western uh, Western liberal bias coming into the podcast, goddamn. Uh, so 6.30 Central. But, um, yeah, night game in Knoxville. We all know how loud it can get there, you know, especially you just give the fan base a literal glimmer of hope and they're ready to get all riled up again. And uh, as they deserve to be, it's been a long time. But uh, they will be, they will be after the past couple of weeks, having you know, multiple, multiple score victories over SEC East opponents and Lane returning to town for the first time as a head coach. Of course, he went back a time or two as an assistant at Bama, but this is the first time he's ever been leading his own team into uh, into Knoxville. So that crowd is going to be absolutely rambunctious, and I'm going to have this on my side screen. Well, now the Bla- the, the Braves play on Saturday, so uh, maybe I'll have to bust three screens out for the night the night slot for Bama Mississippi State um Atlanta and either LA or San Fran and Ole Miss Tennessee I think Ole Miss is the superior team I would lean to take them minus three although the fact that it's only minus three makes me hesitate but I'll still probably do it I don't know I think Tennessee having a couple couple big wins recently like their stock is definitely very quickly on the rise but those two teams that they beat I just don't think are anywhere near as good as Ole Miss but I think regardless of the spread this will be a very entertaining high scoring ball game for everybody to watch at nighttime so now we'll move on to some segments and round this bad boy out we've got the hot seat of the week Presented by your boy Lee Corso, Tier 1, we have a coach who is near and dear to all of our hearts that has shot up the rankings like GameStop on the charts back in January. We've got Coach O, Coach Ed Orgeron at LSU, upgraded to the number one slot on the Tier 1 seat is actively hot, hot seat ranking presented by Lee Corso. He is coming fresh off of a 42-21 loss at Kentucky. The Wildcats just slapped LSU around like they were their rag doll. He is now 3-3 three and three on the 2021 season, making that 8-8 eight and eight since his fearless campaign to win the national championship season with the best team of all time in football history. In addition to losing to Dark Horse Heisman candidate Bo Nix, followed by banana mayo coffee eaten Will Levis at Kentucky. 
Coach O just lost his best receiver and probably offensive player player in Kayshawn Butte for the rest of the season. He is out. Uh, LSU has just had all sorts of injuries and opt-outs, much like last season, which makes you think, hmm, maybe it wasn't just a COVID thing. Maybe he's just a clown, an imposter, and one of the best head coaching gigs in the country, without a doubt. And I think it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Unless he comes back and beats Florida and Bama and A&M this year, I don't think Coach O is going to be seen in Baton Rouge after this season. His, his athletic director has never fired a coach in the middle of the year. So they might just be giving him you know, a little bit of courtesy, a little bit of respect for, in fact, bringing them a national championship less than two calendar years from the day you are listening to this episode. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting coaching search this upcoming season with some extremely high profile jobs wide, wide open, one of which will be Florida State. Possibly, the Knolls are on a two-game winning streak, improving their record to two and four on the season. Head coach Mike Norvell just beat UNC, dark horse playoff contender, led by dark horse Heisman contender, possible first overall draft pick, Sam Howell, Florida State, 1-4 1 and 4 Florida State before this Saturday beat UNC 35 to 25 when UNC was an 18 point favorite. My god. I don't know what's going on in Chapel Hill with Mac Brown and his his squad led led by Howell, but I mean Florida State is as bad as bad as bad as been this year and they just they just beat UNC by two scores. So now we've been kind of keeping track of this. Willie Taggart, the last coach at Florida State, got fired with a 9-12 and overall record after two seasons. Now Mike Norvell only needs to finish the season 4-2 and to tie that record. And hey, who knows? He just may as well do it and stick around for a third season. He's still number two on our Tier 1 hot seat. Uh, number three, we still got our boy Scott Frost up here. Oh, man, I'm almost starting to feel bad for this guy in a way. This is another close loss. I feel like we've done this segment for about a month straight because we basically have. They are now 3-4 and four on the season. Three of, their four, three of their last four games have been close losses that we have discussed on here in this very segment. Close losses to ranked teams by a combined 13 points. So that's three losses to three ranked teams by a combined 13 points. That's to Oklahoma, which was on the road, Michigan State, which was on the road, and Michigan, which was at home this past Saturday. So Nebraska just can't catch a break. I mean, my God, they have to be the unluckiest team in the country at this point to not be able to pull one of these off, you know, feels like in the last 10 years. But even this season, this past month alone, uh, yeah, as much as I love to dunk on him, it's almost making me feel bad for him at this point. But like I said, year four, you know, it's better to lose close than to lose big, but it's not, it's not going to save his job if he just keeps losing close to teams all year long. But they still look like they have vastly improved since week zero in their fascinating loss to the Illinois Fighting Illini. To round off tier one of the segment, we have Manny Diaz at Miami, who was on here last week. He didn't play this week. The Canes had a bye, but they play UNC in what is probably the most disappointing matchup 
of the entire college football regular season. This game, you know, if you had to look at this this upcoming week slate uh, before the season started, you probably would have thought this game or maybe even Florida LSU if you were high on the Cajun Tigers. Uh, this yeah, It would have been game day, and these two teams were supposed to be duking it out for the ACC. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is their conference called? Their divisions or so. The Coastal, ACC Coastal. Everyone thought UNC Miami, you know, they could be you know, maybe not undefeated, but undefeated or one loss going into this game and duke it out for uh, a chance to beat Clemson to get into the playoff. And now, <laughs> good Lord, I don't think even, either team's even going to make a bowl game. So thanks thanks a lot to them for making this a really interesting season. Manny Diaz at the hot seat. I might have to look into Mac Brown next week. Who knows? Tier two, we have got our guy who's been in here, on here all year long, Justin Fuente at VT. They are three and two on the season, coming off the close loss to Notre Dame. Of course, they almost pulled that one off. It was a nice upset that now looks like a big pile of doo doo against UNC Week One there in Blacksburg. So I, I I don't know I don't know they they just need to make a bowl game and maybe he'll be okay but they need to make a bowl game and they've got some work left to do. Uh, moving on, who's not back of the week presented by Texas? You guessed it, it's Texas. Yeah, hook'em horns. Texas is not back. They really thought they were back after getting up twenty-eight to seven in the first half on the number six Oklahoma Sooners, I believe they were. Um, yeah, not the case. They blew that game like they have nearly every meaningful game in the past decade or so. Uh, you know, <laughs> color me shocked, but Texas not quite back yet. Looking okay. Not bad. Not back. Tweet of the week. I am paraphrasing on this one. Uh, one of my favorite college football media people, Holly Anderson from the shutdown full cast in reference to the name of the Red River shootout changing to the red river red river rivalry or whatever they call it now she said paraphrasing quote so glad that changing the name of the red river shootout has done so much to help stop gun violence in our country because these idiots (laughs) you know some things some names that have been changed on buildings and monuments and statues are for good reason because we shouldn't be memorializing you know Civil War slave traders in this country. Uh, however, just people try to take it so damn far to where they think changing the name of a shootout as if it isn't exactly that in this matchup every single year of the rivalry. You know, they think it's gonna make it more like I don't PC kid friendly. I don't. Even, I, I don't. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. But it sure as hell didn't accomplish any better gun violence statistics in this country. So shout out to Holly Anderson slash the shutdown full cast for that one. That's the tweet of the week. Helmet sticker of the week, Caleb Williams for leading Oklahoma back in the biggest Red River shootout comeback in uh, the rivalry's history. So that was a pretty spectacular performance. We already touched on that. Our best bet of the week. Last week, we had the Kentucky LSU under. Turns out we should have just ridden with the Wildcats. Uh, I should have had the guts to do that, but I didn't. I thought it would be much like the Kentucky-Florida game that finished well, well, well under the under. 
I didn't think LSU would be putting up 21 points. Definitely didn't think uh, Kentucky would be putting up 42 points. However, if I'm going to lose one, I want it to be losing to when Kentucky almost busts the over by themselves against a completely pathetic and washed up LSU program. Uh, so anyway, this week, the best bet is the Bama first half minus nine and a half at Mississippi state. I already tweeted this out yesterday as soon as the line came out, because I knew it would be moving the other direction than we wanted it to. The last time I checked earlier this afternoon, it was Bama minus 10. So it's already moved up a half point. You definitely want to catch it before it gets to that 10 and a half since that's just a nice football number to be at least at, if not under the, uh, the minus 10. I don't feel like I really need to explain myself too much on this one. Bama better come back with a vengeance or else we're going to have a very interesting pod for some of my non-Bama listeners next week on here. Uh, I've seen some of the players like Will Anderson coming out and channeling their inner Saban, and I really hope that this Texas A&M game will light a fire under their ass, come out and beat a far inferior team uh, in Mississippi State from the first to the very last minute. So I'm taking Bama, first half, minus nine and a half, lock it in, best bet of the week. Group of five, game of the week. Nothing too special. Uh, so there's just, you know, not a lot of great games out there with group of five teams. So we're going to default probably for the rest of the season until if or when they lose Cincinnati's game because I don't care who they're playing. I'm going to be at the very least keeping an eye on the score. They are a three-touchdown favorite over the Gus Malzahn fighting Knights in Central Florida. Um, So Cincinnati should have no problem with this, especially after they rebounded really well against Temple after probably the biggest win in program history against Notre Dame. Um, So, you know, UCF, who knows? Gus can make it, muck it up, make it weird with his weird weird scheme and everything. But Bearcats should be able to take care of business. But until they lose, they're going to be the most interesting story that is not in the Power Five. The Pac-12 After Dark game of the week. We've got a actually pretty good one this week. Much better than last time around. Number 18, Arizona State is playing at Utah under the lights in Salt Lake City. This one is at 9 p.m. Central Time. Utah is a one-point underdog. The over-under is 51. I, I don't know. I think I like Utah in this one. I was really high on them before the season, so I'm trying to like drop a lot of my preconceived no uh preconceived opinions and you know look at this with the data we have so far this year this will be a great game unless one team comes out and leaves an absolute stinker i might have to ride with utah um but either way this will this will be a really fun late night game to watch after the pretty fun night slate that we have with the bama and tennessee games in the sec and finally, what I'll be watching, the best games in the morning, afternoon, and evening time slots. At 11 a.m., Oklahoma State at Texas. At 2.30 p.m., we've got uh, Kentucky at Georgia. And I included a backup for this game, this time slot, just in case Georgia comes out and rolls Kentucky like they did Arkansas. Iowa's only a number 11, number 11, 11 point favorite against Purdue. Uh, this game is at the same time, 2.30 Central um on abc and that just i don't know as a smaller spread that i 
than I would have expected. It'll probably be a low-scoring game, so it might be close no matter what. You know, Purdue might be within a couple scores late in the game, even if they've played like crap. Uh, but Iowa is just such a slow-moving team. You never know what week they could slip up. Uh, could be any of them with the rest of their schedule being so poor. We'll have to keep an eye on them. And at nighttime, I will be watching Bama and the Braves, but at 6.30 p.m. Central Time, we've got Ole Miss at Tennessee, which I believe will be the most fun viewing game for the neutral fan that doesn't have a dog in the fight. I have not decided on a game day grub this week, having a couple issues with my grill, so I'm trying to get that figured out. So I'll, uh, I'll tweet something out, get it figured out. I hope people enjoyed my delicious pictures from Austin last weekend with my uh, breakfast tacos and amazing brisket that I had there in Texas. It was good to get some good barbecue because that is certainly not Denver's strong point. But um, yeah, I think that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, Thank you everybody for listening. Kind of glad to get my first Bama loss episode out of the way. I'm glad that the Braves put me into a very good mood tonight uh, before I was able to record this because I wasn't, you know, terribly looking forward to it. Uh, all week since that since that game ended, but I hope we got some uh, some good listening numbers with the whole peanut gallery tuning in. But seriously, thank you to anybody who stuck around listening to the whole thing. Appreciate you. I'll check back in with you all next week. And in the meantime, go Braves.